listening to sermons from South Point Locust Grove, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. first time here, uh, my name is Chris. Um, I'm one of the pastors and, uh, at, at our McDonough location uh, just up the road, and uh, so I'm not typically here, but I am really grateful to be among you this morning. Uh, we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 35, and also, if this is your first time, uh, the last Sunday of every month is family worship. So there are probably more children in here than we're typically accustomed to, uh, but that is, that's good. And we're going to all celebrate that to get w- together this morning. My topic is joy, so it's, it's very appropriate that we would have some extra noise in here this morning. If you're a parent of one of those children and you haven't already making use of uh, the family worship packets in the back, feel free to grab those. There's some colored pencils there for your children to follow along um, as we go through this text. But again, we're going to be in Isaiah's chapter chapter 35. Now, as, as we look at this text, I'll just, I'll just be real with you. I, I really struggled on, on how to preach about joy. And, and it, it's not because I don't have joy or that I don't feel joy or that I haven't experienced joy already this season. Um, I've, I've preached this joy on many occasions. So I, I know what to preach. And yet it's, um, it's difficult because I think most of us have heard the message that I've preached or that Pastor Mark has preached or that others in your life have preached on joy. That joy is different than happiness, Right? Happiness is found in circumstances, but joy is this deep, abiding um, emotion that can withstand the deepest tragedies and life's toughest pains. And while that's true, and I'm going to do my best to unpack that a bit during our time together this morning, I think that, if you were to be honest with me, it feels a little trite to us at times. Joy. We're all supposed to have it. Joy, it's that thing that you're supposed to experience as a Christian. And yet, as I speak about joy this morning, you think, yeah, I've, I've heard this. And you probably have. The reality is that most of our days are filled with tremendous difficulty. And on the road to joy, whatever that elusive concept is, we would love, or maybe I'll just speak for myself, while, while we're on this journey towards joy, we'd probably just take happiness, wouldn't we? I, okay, I, I may not get the joy that, that you're talking about this morning, but if I could just have some happiness, I'll take that instead. And that would just be enough. Anybody? Anybody else there? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. Yeah. Joy sounds nice, but happiness is fine, too. Now, as we get to Isaiah chapter 35, the Israelites, we need to know, have been experiencing one of their most difficult moments in all of their history, one of the most darkest and difficult times that they had ever seen. I'm sitting at lunch the other day with a friend, and he looks down at his cell phone, and he says, oh, good news. Uh, I've, I've won the Powerball. All I have to do is text this guy back to transfer the money into my account. And everybody laughs, right? Like, of course, that's too good to be true. You didn't win the Powerball. This guy's scamming you. But I I think that's sometimes what we think about when we think of joy. All of that stuff that the preacher talks about when he says joy, this joy that is going to see us through life's most difficult pains, is just kind of too good to be true. Nobody really experiences that. Nobody really has that. That'd be nice, but it's too good to be true. Now, that's how these 10 verses that we're about to look, look at look at the backdrop of the rest of Isaiah and Israel's present circumstances. So this morning, I want us to see together from Isaiah 35 that the plan of God 
for the people of God is everlasting joy. Hear that. The plan of God for the people of God is everlasting joy. So if you have a Bible handy, whether that's physical or on a cell phone, all is good. If you'll just stand with me if you're able. And we just want to stand and honor the reading of God's word this morning. If you'll read along as as I read aloud. Isaiah chapter 35, it says this. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance and with recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water in the haunt of jackals. Where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes and a highway shall be there. And that shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Here are four truths about joy for the redeemed. Four truths about joy for the people of God. The first is this. Joy is guaranteed for the redeemed. Isaiah gives this idea that joy is going to be guaranteed. It is guaranteed. It is something for the people of God. And this isn't a joke like the Powerball text my friend received. It's not larger than life. It is life. And Isaiah says it's coming for God's people. And so he begins unraveling this metaphor, giving us this beautiful image as to what life is going to be like for the people of God. And we're hit immediately with this desert scene, a desert that is going to be glad, blossoming even, like the crocus. Verse 2 says, look there with me, it shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. There's a reverse of chapter 33 here. If we had time to unpack it all, we, we see there that there was a land that was mourning. It's the opposite. It was a land that was languishing. Lebanon was confounded and it was withering away. Sharon, a desert. It's the opposite now. This isn't like a front yard. I've never been to Phoenix, but I've heard about the landscape there. And so I can imagine as you think about renovating or re-landscaping a front yard in Phoenix, you could put in some new cactus and you can, you know, push in some new rock. This isn't like that. This is something altogether different. Here's a picture of something that was dead and is now alive. I imagine it might be like some of your front porches that a couple of months ago had these beautiful flowing tubs of mums. Anybody? You know, and you said to yourself, this was going to be the year that I keep these mums living up until Christmas. And about three weeks in, those things are as dead as a doornail. Doorknob, yeah. They're just, they're just ugly looking. And so here is this picture of those crunchy, now crunchy mums just blossoming, looking beautiful in the dead of winter. Here's a picture of something that was dead and is now alive. We're supposed to read this, and we're not supposed to immediately think this is exactly what the place for the people of God is going to look like, although it will. And there is coming a day when the new heavens and new earth, it's all made new, and it's going to be a beautiful sight. 
We're going to experience that. But the thing that we're supposed to first think of as we read a text like this is supernatural transformation. That, that this is something that shouldn't be. A desert should not be alive. Dead flowers should not blossom again. Crunchy mums are not meant to come back to life in the winter. And this, I want you to hear this, is supposed to be a picture of what is to happen within God's people. Supernatural transformation. It's not something that's just going to happen out there, but it is something that is supposed to take place within us. Verse 10 gives, gives us a better idea. Look there with me. It says, And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be on their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. You see, this is more than a circumstantial change. This is more than, uh, than a turn of events. This is God showing the people of God what transformation is going to look like in his people. I, I wonder if we often miss as the people of God what joy is actually to be because we're always looking for external circumstances to change. If I could just have this, if this would just turn around in my life, then and then alone will I have joy. But I wonder if God is up to something different. And we see it here in the text. The NIV actually has a stronger translation here, I believe. It says that gladness and joy will overtake the ransom. It's not that gladness and joy will be obtained for the believer. It's that it's going to overtake us. It's a military term. Joy and gladness aren't just received or obtained. It's going to overtake us. And on that day, the text says that sorrow and sighing are going to be left in the dust. If we go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, we saw after Adam and Eve committed the first sin, that the ground was cursed. The ground that was originally beautiful and always producing plentiful crops was now going to be very difficult, and it was going to be met with toil and difficulty. Can you imagine for a moment that Georgia red clay, when the earth was invented, was supposed to be fertile? Can you imagine some of us, like myself, like we just get plants from Lowe's and we keep them in the pots. So we don't really understand the magnificence of Georgia red clay producing a great harvest. But that was to be the case. Romans 8 tells us, some of you are familiar, um, that creation itself is eagerly longing for the effects of sin's curse to be broken. And Isaiah 35 comes in the middle of a really difficult time for the people of God and tells us that that curse is indeed being reversed. It will be reversed. Now, all that sounds great, but I know I'm starting to sound like the guy that I said that I didn't want to be when we started this morning. I'm starting to sound like the guy who said, hey, uh, you know, joy is this thing that everybody can experience through the deepest, most possible pain. You can have joy. I'm starting to sound like that, giving you religious platitudes about how joy is yours and it's going to be better tomorrow. But if you're like me, I, I just want to see where that promise is. Where's the guarantee that that joy is really going to be mine? Look there at verse 4. How is all this going to happen? Right there in the middle of verse 4, Isaiah writes this. Behold, your God will come. That's it. Stop there. And that is our guarantee. Behold, your God will come. In, in uh, Russell Moore's fantastic book, Adopted for Life, uh, he, he talks about this story at the very beginning of the book, if I remember correctly. And he and his wife were going to Russia to adopt some children. And they walk in this orphanage that they had heard about, uh, had tons of babies that were in need of parents. Lots and lots of children having no caretakers. 
And as they walk into this place and they start going down the halls, they see all of these just rows of children. He said it was the craziest noise that he had ever heard. It wasn't that there were just tons and tons of babies and that there were a few caretakers to provide for, for all of these babies so that it sounded chaotic and loud and noisy. He said it was the scariest sound he had ever heard because it was silent. Walking in an orphanage with lots and lots of babies, it should not be silent. Now, why was it silent? It was silent because after a period of time when a baby cries and cries and cries and cries and realizes at some point that no one is coming for them, what do they do? They stop crying. He said it was the scariest sound he had ever heard. Verse 4 is a reversal of all of that. There's no more children that are fatherless. There's no more land that is unfertile. This is a righting of every wrong. It's like the moment when silent babies begin to cry again. And why would they cry? When deserts bloom and waters spring forth in a dry land for the redeemed, the people of God, hear this again, joy is not found in the circumstance. It's not found in a different circumstance, though we often would want that to happen. It's found in the presence of God coming to his people. Joy is found in the presence of God coming to his people. You see, the guarantee your God will come is the basis for joy in your life. We can't miss that. As we begin this Advent season, as we remember the first coming of Christ Jesus, let us, guarantee, let us cling to that guarantee as the people of God. Your God will come. Hear this. And I'm going to try, try to mean this as I say it as well. The source for joy is not in your bank account going from negative to positive. The source of joy is not from your children going from misbehaving to behaving. The source for joy is not moving from a nagging wife to a respectful wife. It's not found in D's in your report card, all of a sudden becoming A's. Joy is found in the presence of God coming to his people. Your God will come is the basis of joy in your life. It's the guarantee of it. And before we move on, I want us to look and see just who this God is that is coming. Verse 3, we see there, that he's the God of those who have weak hands. He's the God of those who have feeble knees. He's the God of those who have anxious hearts. And we need to receive this today. The gospel cannot possibly be reconciled with the American notion of pull yourself up by the bootstrap gospel theology. The kind that says, get yourself together, son, and get yourself to church. No, this joy, this gospel is for people who can't help themselves. Do you realize today that our gathering, our very gathering, this gathering of people today is an admittance of that? Whether you find yourself personally coming with that admittance or not, the gathering of the people of God Sunday in and Sunday out is an admittance that we cannot possibly do this on our own. We're a weak people. Do you know that? We're a weak people. We are desperate for God to intervene. We are recognizing together as the people of God, as we lift our hands, as we sing songs to one another, as you hear the preached word of God taught week in and week out, we are admitting before God and to one another, man, I can't do this. 
can't do this without the help of God. We are expressing together that we can't possibly do this. And we don't come as a people to prove ourselves worthy to God. No, in fact, we come together to say that our God is worthy of worship. So we're submitting ourselves before you, Holy Father. It's a complete reorienting of the week that we've just had, right? Where over and over we kept saying to ourselves, I've got this. If I can just pull this together, if my kids would just behave. No, we come together on Sundays. And it is a grace-giving time, is it not? Where we say, man, I totally blew it. I've messed up. I've sinned more than you can possibly imagine. And yet the Lord is kind and gracious to see that we might surrender ourselves yet again together as the people of God so that we could say, Lord, you are worthy. And he is saying in the midst of that is joy that is everlasting and joy is found there. John Calvin says of this verse that by the tongue and ears and feet, he means all the faculties of our soul, every bit of us which in themselves are so corrupt that nothing that is good can be obtained from them till they are restored by the kindness of Christ. We come as a people with anxious hearts, weak knees, feeble hands, and we say together, every bit of our faculties is tainted and we need the kindness of Christ to remind us in the here and now that there is something better than what we've experienced this week. Are you weak this morning? Feeble? Anxious even? That's the kind of people that God is coming for. As we move on in verse 4, I want us to see that joy is not only guaranteed for the people of God, but joy is made simple for the redeemed. Verse 4 gets a little tricky because... As we keep reading, we find out just how this God is coming. Remember, I stopped us in the middle, and maybe your eyes kept reading. We saw there, look with me. It says, say to those in verse 4 who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Hold up. Is this the same passage that we just were reading? Verses 1 and 2 and 3. We're talking about the deserts becoming oases, dead things coming to life, and now this God is coming in vengeance. After the verses we just read, I thought that God was coming with pumpkin pie. Any, any pumpkin pie fans? Like three. You know, my mom, every year, she brings to our Thanksgiving meal two pumpkin pies because she tells me every year, my recipe calls for two pumpkin pies. And I'm the only person out of all 20 people to eat the pumpkin pie. I, I guess people just don't like pumpkin pie. What do you guys like? Kids? There's some kids in here. What's, what's y'all's favorite dessert at Thanksgiving? Huh? Anybody? What? Bless you. Anybody else? Chocolate. Yeah. Pumpkin pie? This is amazing. There is a new generation among us. But I, after we read those verses, I thought to myself, man, this is the God, like deserts are becoming life-giving, right? This must be a God who is issuing in some dessert for the people of God. And now the text says this God is coming. The, the very guarantee of our joy is saying your God will come and he's coming with vengeance and recompense. What in the world are we reading? He's coming with vengeance and retribution. Now, I think on one hand, we don't really mind the vengeance because vengeance is always something that happens out there. Vengeance is for other people. In fact, over the next two years, if you're mildly on Twitter or Facebook, I think that you'll see how everyone seems to be for vengeance, right? Whatever side of the party lines you fall on, it's like, man, we are good with vengeance. Kill them on that side. Kill them on this side. We're good. Just wipe them out. In fact, in the last election cycle, my next-door neighbor, who I thought we were building good relationships with, um, she, she basically posted, she said, hey, if you voted for this particular person, count us not as friends. I'm like, okay, okay, okay. I mean, that's weird. 
you know? Um, but we're cool with vengeance. That speaks to us at our core. Even if you're an atheist and you find yourself today, you come in here and you say, I actually don't believe in God. So-and-so forced me into coming here today. I think that you're actually also okay with some higher force dealing with bad people, right? We are good with vengeance. Most people are, are, are cool with those people getting what's coming to them. Child molesters should pay. Rapists should pay. Murderers should pay. We're good with vengeance, right? Everybody agree with that? I mean, there's nothing wrong about that. We're, we're good with vengeance. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. It's the other part that we don't like so much, retribution. Because while vengeance works on people out there and it deals with evil out there, retribution is all about what you have done. That God is coming in judgment for you. That God is coming in judgment for, for me. And this is the part of the Christian story, if we're honest, that is, is kind of harder to make as our own. God isn't just coming for the evil that is out there, outside of these brick walls. God is also coming for the evil that is lurking in here. And honestly, we're really good at pointing it out, out there. We're not so good at seeing it in here. When God comes, he's going to expose every bit of it. In Isaiah 6, likely a familiar passage to some of you, we, we have this heavenly vision of Isaiah being uh, taken up into the throne room of God. And as he sees all of the beauty and he sees the glory of God, he sees uh, God's train filling this room, all of a sudden Isaiah falls to his knees. There, there is a bodily response as to what is happening in that moment. And Isaiah says immediately before the Father, Woe is me, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amidst a people of unclean lips. Isaiah didn't have to think about that. When God comes, when the glory of God is revealed, it just does that to us. It exposes, it reveals not only what we are, but it exposes who we are. And when we come into contact with the glory of God, we find that we are sinners. Aware that we often want to do things our own way, despite God's invitation into fellowship and relationship. And when we realize that our sinfulness apart from Christ is real, we also recognize that we cannot possibly stand on our own. We find ourselves in an impossible situation. I want to be with the God who's inviting me into relationship with him, but I know that I cannot be in relationship with him because of who I am. When the glory of God is revealed, we find out that we are more sinful than we could have possibly imagined. And we, in our sinful state, have nothing to stand on. We're sinners. We've wanted to go our own way. We're fleeing from a relationship in our natural state with a holy God. So the question becomes this. How can God possibly come and deal with the evil out there and deal with the evil in here without completely destroying me? Have you ever thought about that? That's the question. How can he possibly see that vengeance is done out there and that retribution is also his in here and that we are left standing? That's how joy is made simple for the redeemed because it's answered in the first advent. It's answered in the person of Christmas that is Jesus. So third, we see that joy is found in Jesus Christ for the redeemed. The Lord Jesus Christ, that is. The way that God makes joy simple for the redeemed, knowing our desperate state, knowing our neediness in relationship with a holy God and our inability to produce that in of ourselves. 
Our inability to make a desert inside of us into a blossoming place, knowing that we need both grace and judgment, sends his son, Christ Jesus, to be born of a ba- as a baby in the city of David, that is Bethlehem. And while Isaiah's original audience was to be looking forward to this day, we have this unique spot of remembering that Christ has indeed come. We have this unique spot in redemptive history to say Jesus has indeed come. For us as believers under the new covenant, we aren't stuck looking at a, at a save the date card on the refrigerator. The joy has indeed come. Matthew chapter 1, if you're quick, With your fingers, you can turn to verse 20. Matthew chapter 1, it says this. An angel comes to Joseph in verse 20, and it says, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. That baby that is to be born has two names, Jesus and Emmanuel. And we can't miss that because in the two names of this baby is the key to the joy that God wants for us. It's where God makes the impossible simple. It's where the God of the heavens makes the paradox of the gospel simple. He satisfies it. Hear this. Emmanuel means, what does the text say? God with us. You remember in verse 4 of Isaiah chapter 35, it says, your God will, your God will, The angel in Matthew chapter 1 is saying, God has kept his promise. Isaiah 35 is pointing to the first advent that Christ Jesus is coming. And this is huge for us because it shows us who God is. It shows us his very nature. It shows us what we know in 1 John 4, 7 to be true, that God is love. And if you've ever ever went to grab a child and to pick a child up. You know that in doing so, you are stooping down. In God being love, we see that God is stooping down. He's condescending to see that we might experience who he is. Love. Love never says, you need to get to my level, but I'm going to get to yours. If Emmanuel... If God became human at Christmas, he's saying, I did this because I love you. Emmanuel, God with us, tells us that he is love. And second, Jesus means what? What does the text say? The Lord who saves. The Lord our Savior. My family spent much of our day Friday uh, decorating our house for Christmas. Anybody, anybody else there? You, you done that? You, you finished? Okay. The tree's up. Stockings are hung. Candles are lit. Well, they were. I blew them out, but I love just having fun this time of the year. In fact, we took the kids to Fort Valley down south, below Macon, yesterday, just to see the new stuff at Bucky's because the kids love Bucky's. Who doesn't love Bucky's? If you haven't been to... I'm sorry, Lane. Something's wrong. But we, we took just to see the Christmas stuff, and so the kids could meet Bucky's. I, I love this time of the season. There is like this built-in anticipation for the season. And sure, it has been greatly commercialized, and we could, we could get held captive to that, so let's not miss that. But there is this built-in anticipation for the thing that we are able to celebrate, knowing that Christ Jesus is coming, and for us, knowing that Christ Jesus has indeed come. And that's all great. It's fun to decorate the house. It's fun to see the kids have fun. But I guarantee you, according to scripture, that the first Christmas wasn't quite like that, was it? There were no twinkling lights wrapped in Jesus' manger. Jesus was just 
swaddled in cloth because Jesus was on a rescue mission. That's why he came. He came for the redemption of his people. Jesus was coming to do for his children what we could never do on our own. And so as we consider Jesus, the Lord who saves, we find out the way in which God can actually deal with the sin out there and deal with the evil and sin in here at the same time without completely obliterating us is through his son, Christ Jesus. Jesus himself attested to the fact that he was coming to do this in Luke chapter 7 when John's disciples come and say, hey, are you the one? And he says this about himself, that the blind have received their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, as he's quoting Isaiah chapter 35. He says that thing that Isaiah prophesied about hundreds of years ago, that is me. It's happening now in the here and now. Jesus says, I'm the key to everlasting joy. It's me. I'm the one that you've been looking for. You thought it was in a replenished bank account. I'm the one. You thought it was in a really good report card. I'm the one. You thought that it was in a restored marriage. I'm the one. You've been looking for it in all the wrong places and you have been good to accept happiness when I'm the one that came and said you could have everlasting joy. I want us to consider joy for a moment in the context of Jesus saving us from our sins. Because when we think of sins, we often only think about it in legal terms. And there are plenty of places in the Bible that, that God talks about sin in those ways. But consider Hebrews chapter 12 for just a moment. When Jesus is heading to the cross, we see there the text tells us that Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and he is now seated at the right hand of God. Now, do you think when Jesus thought about the joy that was set before him, he was thinking only a legal act before his father? He was thinking a relational one. Jesus knows what kind of relationship that he himself has existed in for all time with the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have always been existing in perfect joy, fellowship, harmony for all time. And Jesus, as he goes to the cross, he knows the sinfulness that is not only lurking out there, but that is lurking in here. He knows the sinfulness of mankind that is keeping us from that relationship that he's existed in for all time and as he heads to the cross as painful as his circumstances were and they were he finds joy why because he knows that his relationship with his children is about to be restored and that we will get to be in relationship with him for all time as Jesus heads to the cross his joy comes from knowing hear this it's all part of the plan. It's just part of the plan. It's, it's insanely difficult right now. Jesus was heading to his own death. But he takes joy knowing that we would be redeemed. We would be restored. We would be reconciled into relationship with him. And he thinks it's all a part of the plan. Jesus must have thought, oh, I, I can do this for Chris. I can do this for Lynn. I can do this for Paige. I can do this for Dave. Oh, yes, I can do this. It brings me great joy because I want him to know. I want her to know what kind of joy it brings me to be in relationship with the Father and the Spirit. It's all part of the plan. And so in just a couple of minutes that we have left, I want us to ask, what does that plan mean for us? Fourth and finally, joy is a journey for the redeemed. 
It means that there is a journey that God is inviting the people of God on. And the text tells us there that it's a highway. It's a roadway. And when we think of, the, when we think of highway, especially today, we think of what? Nightmare, traffic, the bane of our existence. The worst thing about Henry County, coming to you in butts. It's terrible. And yet for an ancient person, as Isaiah is speaking about this, it is a blessing thinking about the fact that there is a highway that is coming in the middle of a desert. This is an amazing thought. It doesn't only allow someone to more quickly travel from one place to another, but it also allows that person to travel in great safety. God had this plan for his people to be in relationship with him before the beginning of time. The scripture is clear about this. He made a plan for it. Jesus, on his way to the cross, as he's experiencing great joy in the midst of great difficulty, thinks about that plan. And now we see that there is a highway we can quickly travel. A highway in which we can safely travel for those who are redeemed. And you can't miss it. Even fools, the text says, can't dodge it. And this highway is said to be one of holiness. Holiness meaning being set apart for God. Meaning that God says about his children, you're mine and you're mine. It's a relational term at its essence. And so the people of God are on a journey, and we're invited into following him with our entire being, completely given to him, knowing that it's all part of the plan. And friend, would you know that there's nothing boring about following God and his plan? Pastor Ray Ortland, in his conclusion of his commentary in this chapter in Isaiah, says that in following Christ, you are never at a dead end, but a threshold. So we're not supposed to think in the Christian life, okay, cool, I've been saved, I prayed a prayer, I've been baptized, I'll go to church, cool, done my thing. No, no. We're supposed to think there is a highway for the people of God. There is a road. There's a way forward. We're supposed to be asking what in the world could happen today as a result of the everlasting joy that has been placed within me because of what God did inside of me. What would it look like to have a life of that kind of expectancy? What would it look like as the redeemed to create among us, an atmosphere of expectancy. The writer of Hebrews quotes Isaiah 35 in chapter 12, as we saw. But after explaining that discipline is good for the children of God, he says, therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. It seems as if some of the plan of God before the foundation of the world for the people of God in living out everlasting joy is that we would be a part of this thing together. That we would be encouraging one another. And so when your knees are weak, I come alongside of you, encourage you. When my heart is anxious, you come alongside and encourage me. And that is the part that we play as the people of God with one another. Sharing in the joy with one another. Recognizing that no matter how difficult this life is or will be, that joy has come. It's guaranteed. It's been made simple and it's found in Christ. And finally, it is a journey and a journey that you've been invited on. A journey that's part of the plan. About five years ago, we started preparing for what we hoped would end with us being able to adopt a, a second child. We were, we were throwing money into our savings account whenever we could. And uh, Dory, Dory wasn't working outside of the home, and I'm on staff at South Point, so it wasn't a lot thrown into the savings account, but we were trying to do what we could, thanks be to God. And we were, we were taking our pennies, and we were, we were pushing them into those bank accounts, and we were doing our best. Now, I'm a nostalgic at heart. And so almost every single day, I, uh, I'm going to pull up my pictures and I'm going to look at the, 
that same day of the year past and maybe the year past that and maybe the year past that. Depending on the day, I might do it the year past that. But a few weeks ago, I was, I was doing just that and I, I come across this screenshot of my bank account and I didn't even remember it. It was from a picture from 2019 that showed our bank accounts um, right after we were able to adopt Cyrus. Man, that was a beautiful time. And in the combined checking and savings accounts, I had two savings accounts. I don't know why because there's not much in either. But I had two savings accounts and one checking account, and uh, one savings had 0.00. The second had $1.86, and the checking account had $27.62. By all accounts, Cyrus's adoption cost us financially everything. And you know what? Until I saw that picture a few weeks ago, I cannot even remember that happening. Why? Because when the adoption opportunity came, when that phone call came and, and, and we heard on the other side of the line, hey, there is a baby boy and his, his mother that has been growing him in her womb for the last nine months has chosen you to parent him. And we, we just, we, we ran to Macon with great joy. And we wrote a check. I didn't think about the pain. It was probably naive on my part. I didn't even think about what might happen with nothing in my my bank accounts. I transferred the money and I thought, this is just part of the plan. We wanted this to happen. We planned for it to happen. And praise God, he's provided a way. I wonder what the journey that the Lord has you on is like. I wonder if you'd say or your family would say that your journey has been marked by one of joy. I can tell you whether it has or whether it has not. The plan of God from the beginning of time has been that it would, has been that it will. And his plan is that it can be. Imagine with me for a moment. As the next difficulty in your life arises, or maybe you're finding yourself in the midst of an incredible difficulty right here and right now, what would it be like if the people of God gathered in this room together today decided that we're going to have a conversation with the Father next time, and we're going to say, Lord, I may not like this, but I know it's all a part of the plan. The plan of God for the people of God is everlasting joy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've given us a chance as your people to sit under your word this morning. We thank you that you have uh, seen that this text was written thousands of years ago that we might know you and that we might love you, that we might live lives of expectancy, knowing that Christ Jesus was coming and now knowing that he has come. Knowing that Joy is not something that other people can experience, but not me. But knowing that Christ Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, despised the shame, endured pain, went to the cross to see that joy, everlasting joy, could be guaranteed, would be guaranteed for your redeemed. And that you've made that complex thing simple. Where we deserved your vengeance and your retribution. Where our world deserves for you to come in judgment towards them. And also we deserve it ourselves. And yet you saw a way. You planned a way for your son Christ Jesus to come to live a perfect life, to die a death at the hands of angry men and exchange 
on the cross our sinfulness for his righteousness that we might know you and that we might experience everlasting joy, deep abiding joy. Joy that is found in the person of Christ, the person of Christmas. God, I pray that as we experience what you have for us, this highway of joy over the next several weeks, as we look forward and we remember your first coming, Son, Christ Jesus, that we would be continually thinking, even in difficulty, this is all just part of the plan, a plan for great joy for your people. It's in Christ Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Every week at South Point, we participate in what the Bible calls the Lord's Supper, communion. And Jesus himself instituted it on the night before he was killed. And he had his disciples in a room together and he broke bread and he was trying to tell them that this was going to be a symbol, a picture of his coming death on the cross. And so as we eat the people of God in just a moment and we take that bread and we dip it into the bowl of juice, there are four stations around this room. We're remembering what Jesus Christ came to do, that he came as the real, tangible, physical guarantee that joy could be ours forever. But I want you to hear this. This meal is not for any one of us that would come and would say, I've got it all together. I can do this thing on my own. No, it's for a Christian. And a Christian is one who confesses amongst the body of believers that I am a man or I am a woman of weak hands, feeble knees, and an anxious heart. So come, celebrate what Christ has done, giving us everlasting joy.